Welcome to John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 3, Chapter 20, Section 44. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions in the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, 6. Section 44. Now comes the second part of the prayer, in which we descend to our own interests, not, indeed, that we are to lose sight of the glory of God, to which, as Paul declares, we must have respect even in meat and drink, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, and ask only what is expedient for ourselves. But the distinction, as we have already observed, is this. God, claiming the three first petitions, especially his own, carries us entirely to himself, that in this way he may prove our piety. Next, he permits us to look to our own advantage, but still on the condition that when we ask anything for ourselves, it must be in order that all the benefits which he confers may show forth his glory, there being nothing more incumbent on us than to live and die to him. By the first petition of the second part, Give us this day our daily bread. We pray in general that God would give us all things which the body requires in this sublunary state, not only food and clothing, but everything which he knows will assist us to eat our bread in peace. In this way we briefly cast our care upon him and commit ourselves to his providence, that he may feed, foster, and preserve us. For our Heavenly Father disdains not to take our body under his charge and protection, that he may exercise our faith in those minute matters while we look to him for everything, even to a morsel of bread and a drop of water. For since, owing to some strange inequality, we feel more concern for the body than for the soul, many who can trust the latter to God will continue anxious about the former, still hesitate as to what they are to eat, as to how they are to be clothed, and are in trepidation whenever their hands are not filled with corn and wine and oil. Psalm 4, verse 8. So much more value do we set on this shadowy, fleeting life than on a blessed immortality. But those who, trusting to God, have once cast away that anxiety about the flesh, immediately look to him for our greater gifts, even salvation and eternal life. It is no slight exercise of faith, therefore, to hope in God for things which would otherwise give us so much concern. Nor have we made little progress when we get quit of this unbelief which cleaves, as it were, to our very bones. The speculations of some concerning supersubstantial bread seem to be very little accordant with our Savior's meaning, for our prayer would be defective were we not to ascribe to God the nourishment even of this fading life. The reason which they give is heathenish, viz., that it is inconsistent with the character of sons of God who ought to be spiritual, not only to occupy their mind with earthly cares, but to suppose God also occupied with them as if his blessing and paternal favor were not eminently displayed in giving us food, or as if there were nothing in the declaration that godliness hath, quote, the promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come, unquote. 1 Timothy 4, verse 8. But although the forgiveness of sins is of far more importance than the nourishment of the body, yet Christ has set down the inferior in the prior place in order that he might gradually raise us to the other two petitions, which properly belong to the heavenly life, and this providing for our sluggishness. We are enjoined to ask our bread, that we may be contented with the measure which our heavenly Father is pleased to dispense, and not strive to make gain by illicit arts. Meanwhile, we must hold that the title by which it is ours is donation, because, as Moses says, in Leviticus 26, verse 20, and Deuteronomy 8, verse 17, neither our industry, nor labor, nor hands acquire anything for us, unless the blessing of God be present. 
Nay, not even would abundance of bread be of the least avail, were it not divinely converted into nourishment. And hence this liberality of God is not less necessary to the rich than to the poor, because though their cellars and barns were full, they would be parched and pine with want did they not enjoy his favor along with their bread. The terms this day are, as it is in another evangelist, daily, and also the epithet daily, lay a restraint on our immoderate desire of fleeting good, a desire which we are extremely apt to indulge to excess, and from which other evils ensue. For when our supply is in richer abundance, we ambitiously squander it in pleasure, luxury, ostentation, or other kinds of extravagance. Wherefore we are only enjoined to ask as much as our necessity requires, and as it were for each day, confiding that our Heavenly Father, who gives us the supply of today, will not fail us on the morrow. How great soever our abundance may be, however well filled our cellars and granaries, we must still always ask for daily bread, for we must feel assured that all substance is nothing unless insofar as the Lord, by pouring out his blessing, make it fruitful during its whole progress. For even that which is in our hand is not ours, except insofar as he every hour pours it out and permits us to use it. As nothing is more difficult to human pride than the admission of this truth, the Lord declares that he gave a special proof for all ages, when he fed his people with manna in the desert. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. That he might remind us that, quote, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Unquote. Matthew 4, verse 4. It is thus intimated that by his power alone our life and strength are sustained, though he ministers supply to us by bodily instruments. In like manner, whenever it so pleases, he gives us a proof of an opposite description by breaking the strength, or, as he himself calls it, the staff of bread, Leviticus 26, verse 26, and leaving us, even while eating, to pine with hunger, and while drinking, to be parched with thirst. Those who, not contented with daily bread, indulge in unrestrained insatiable cupidity, are those who are full of their own abundance and trust in their own riches, only mock God by offering up this prayer. For the former ask what they would be unwilling to obtain, nay, what they most of all abominate, namely, daily bread only, and as much as in them lies, disguise their avarice from God, whereas true prayer should pour out the whole soul and every inward feeling before him. The latter again ask what they do not at all expect to obtain, namely, what they imagine that they in themselves already possess. In its being called ours, God, as we have already said, gives a striking display of his kindness, making that to be ours to which we have no just claim. Nor must we reject the view to which I have already adverted, viz., that this name is given to what is obtained by just and honest labor, as contrasted with what is obtained by fraud and rapine, nothing being our own which we obtain with injury to others. When we ask God to give us, the meaning is that the thing asked is simply and freely the gift of God, whatever be the quarter from which it comes to us, even when it seems to have been specially prepared by our own art and industry, and procured by our hands, since it is to his blessing alone that all our labors owe their success. Section 45. The next petition is, Forgive us our debts. In this and the following petition, our Savior has briefly comprehended whatever is conducive to the heavenly life, as these two members contain the spiritual covenant which God made for the salvation of his church. Quote, I will put my law on their inward parts and write it on their hearts. Unquote. Quote, I will pardon all their iniquities. Unquote. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, and 33, verse 8. Here our Savior begins with the forgiveness of sins, and then adds the subsequent blessing, these, that God would protect us by the power and support us by the aid of his Spirit, so that we may stand invincible against all temptations. To sins he gives the name of debts, because we owe the punishment due to them, a debt which we could not possibly pay, were we not discharged by this remission, the result of his free mercy, when he freely expunges the debt, accepting nothing in return but of his own mercy receiving satisfaction in Christ, who gave himself a ransom for us. Romans 3, verse 24. Hence, those who expect to satisfy God by merits of their own or of others, or to compensate and purchase forgiveness by means of satisfactions, have no share in this free pardon, and while they address God in this petition, do nothing more than subscribe their own accusation and seal their condemnation by their own testimony. For they confess that they are debtors, 
unless they are discharged by means of forgiveness. This forgiveness, however, they do not receive, but rather reject, when they obtrude their merits and satisfactions upon God, since by so doing they do not implore His mercy, but appeal to His justice. Let those again who dream of a perfection which makes it unnecessary to seek pardon find their disciples among those whose itching ears incline them to imposture. Only let them understand that those whom they thus acquire have been carried away from Christ, since he, by instructing all to confess their guilt, receives none but sinners, not that he may soothe and so encourage them in their sins, but because he knows that believers are never so divested of the sins of the flesh as not to remain obnoxious to the justice of God. It is indeed to be wished, it ought even to be our strenuous endeavor, to perform all the parts of our duty, so as truly to congratulate ourselves before God as being pure from every stain. But as God is pleased to renew his image in us by degrees, so that to some extent there is always a residue of corruption in our flesh, we ought by no means to neglect the remedy. But if Christ, according to the authority given him by his Father, enjoins us during the whole course of our lives to implore pardon, who can tolerate those new teachers who, by the phantom of perfect innocence, endeavor to dazzle the simple and make them believe that they can render themselves completely free from guilt? This, as John declares, is nothing else than to make God a liar. 1 John 1, verse 10. In like manner, those foolish men mutilate the covenant in which we have seen that our salvation is contained by concealing one head of it, and so destroying it entirely. Being guilty not only of profanity, in that they separate things which ought to be indissolubly connected, but also of wickedness and cruelty and overwhelming wretched souls with despair, of treachery also to themselves and their followers, and that they encourage themselves in a carelessness diametrically opposed to the mercy of God. It is excessively childish to object that when they long for the advent of the kingdom of God, they at the same time pray for the abolition of sin. In the former division of the prayer, absolute perfection is set before us, but in the latter, our own weakness. Thus the two fitly correspond to each other. We strive for the goal and at the same time neglect not the remedies which our necessities require. In the next part of the petition we pray to be forgiven, quote, as we forgive our debtors, unquote. That is, as we spare and pardon all by whom we are in any way offended, either in deed by unjust or in word by contumelious treatment. Not that we can forgive the guilt of a fault or offense. This belongs to God only. But we can forgive to this extent. We can voluntarily divest our minds of wrath, hatred, and revenge, and deface the remembrance of injuries by a voluntary oblivion. Wherefore, we are not to ask the forgiveness of our sins from God unless we forgive the offenses of all who are or have been injurious to us. If we retain any hatred in our minds, if we meditate revenge and devise the means of hurting, nay, if we do not return to a good understanding with our enemies, perform every kind of friendly office and endeavor to effect a reconciliation with them, we, by this petition, beseech God not to grant us forgiveness. For we ask Him to do to us as we do to others. This is the same as asking him not to do, unless we do also. What then do such persons obtain by this petition but a heavier judgment? Lastly, it is to be observed that the condition of being forgiven as we forgive our debtors is not added because by forgiving others we deserve forgiveness as if the cause of forgiveness were expressed. But by the use of this expression the Lord has been pleased partly to solace the weakness of our faith, using it as a sign to assure us that our sins are as certainly forgiven as we are certainly conscious of having forgiven others, when our mind is completely purged from all envy, hatred, and malice. And partly using as a badge by which he excludes from the number of his children all who prone to revenge and reluctant to forgive obstinately keep up their enmity, cherishing against others that indignation which they deprecate from themselves so that they should not venture to invoke him as a father. In the Gospel of Luke, we have this distinctly stated in the words of Christ. Section 46. The sixth petition corresponds, as we have observed, to the promise of writing the law upon our hearts. But because we do not obey God without a continual warfare, without sharp and arduous contests, we here pray that he would furnish us with armor and defend us by his protection, that we may be able to obtain the victory. 
By this we are reminded that we not only have a need of the gift of the Spirit inwardly to soften our hearts and turn and direct them to the obedience of God, but also of his assistance to render us invincible by all the wiles and violent assaults of Satan. The forms of temptation are many and various. The depraved conceptions of our minds provoking us to transgress the law, conceptions which our concupiscence suggests are the devil excites, are temptations and things which in their own nature are not evil become temptations by the wiles of the devil when they are presented to our eyes in such a way that the view of them makes us withdraw or decline from God. James 1, verses 2 and 14, Matthew 4, verses 1 and 3, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, and 2 Corinthians 6, verses 7 and 8. These temptations are both on the right hand and on the left. On the right, when riches, power, and honors, which by their glare and the semblance of good which they present, generally dazzle the eyes of men and so entice by their blandishments, that, caught by their snares and intoxicated by their sweetness, they forget their God. On the left, when offended by the hardship and bitterness of poverty, disgrace, contempt, afflictions, and other things of that description, they despond, cast away their confidence and hope, and are at length totally estranged from God. In regard to both kinds of temptation, which either enkindled in us by concupiscence or presented by the craft of Satan, or against us, we pray God the Father not to allow us to be overcome, but rather to raise and support us by his hand, that strengthened by his mighty power we may stand firm against all the assaults of our malignant enemy, whatever be the thoughts which he sends into our minds. Next we pray that whatever of either description is allotted us, we may turn to good, that is, may neither be inflated with prosperity nor cast down by adversity. Here, however, we do not ask to be altogether exempted from temptation, which is very necessary to excite, stimulate, and urge us on, that we may not become too lethargic. It was not without reason that David wished to be tried, nor is it without cause that the Lord daily tries his elect, chastising them by disgrace, poverty, tribulation, and other kinds of cross. Psalm 26, verse 2, Genesis 22, verse 1, Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, Deuteronomy 13, verse 3, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, 2 Peter 2, verse 9, and 1 Peter 5, verse 8. But the temptations of God and Satan are very different. Satan tempts that he may destroy, condemn, confound, throw headlong. God, that by proving his people he may make trial of their sincerity and by exercising their strength, confirm it may mortify, tame, and cauterize their flesh, which, if not curbed in this manner, would wanton and exult above measure. Besides, Satan attacks those who are unarmed and unprepared, that he may destroy them unawares. Whereas, whatever God sends, he, quote, will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it, unquote. Whether by the term evil we understand the devil or sin is not of the least consequence. Satan is indeed the very enemy who lays snares for our life, but it is by sin that he is armed for our destruction. Our petition, therefore, is that we may not be overcome or overwhelmed with temptation, but in the strength of the Lord may stand firm against all the powers by which we are assailed. In other words, may not fall under temptation, that being thus taken under his charge and protection, we may remain invincible by sin, death, the gates of hell, and the whole power of the devil. In other words, be delivered from evil. Here it is carefully to be observed that we have no strength to contend with such a combatant as the devil or to sustain the violence of his assault. Were it otherwise, it would be mockery of God to ask of him what we already possess in ourselves. Assuredly, those who in self-confidence prepare for such a fight do not understand how bold and well-equipped the enemy is with whom they have to do. Now we ask to be delivered from his power, as from the mouth of some furious raging lion, who would instantly tear us with his teeth and claws and swallow us up, did not the Lord rescue us from the midst of death. At the same time, knowing that if the Lord is present and will fight for us while we stand by, through him, quote, we shall do valiantly, unquote. Psalm 60, verse 12. Let others, if they will, confide in the powers and resources of their free will, which they think they possess. Enough for us that we stand and are strong in the power of God alone. But the prayer comprehends more than at first sight it seems to do. For if the Spirit of God is our strength in waging the contest with Satan, we cannot gain the victory unless we are filled with him and thereby freed from all infirmity of the flesh. 
Therefore, when we pray to be delivered from sin and Satan, we at the same time desire to be enriched with new supplies of divine grace, until completely replenished with them, we triumph over every evil. To some it seems rude and harsh to ask God not to lead us into temptation, since, as James declares, James 1 verse 13, it is contrary to his nature to do so. This difficulty has already been partly solved by the fact that our concupiscence is the cause, and therefore properly bears the blame of all the temptations by which we are overcome. All that James means is that it is vain and unjust to ascribe to God vices which our own consciousness compels us to impute to ourselves. But this is no reason why God may not, when he sees it meet, bring us into bondage to Satan, give us up to a reprobate mind and shameful lusts, and so, by a just indeed but often hidden judgment, lead us into temptation. Though the cause is often concealed from men, it is well known to him. Hence we may see that the expression is not improper if we are persuaded that it is not without cause he so often threatens to give sure signs of his vengeance by blinding the reprobate and hardening their hearts. Section 47 These three petitions, in which we specially commend ourselves and all that we have to God, clearly show what we formerly observed, in sections 38 and 39, that the prayers of Christians should be public and have respect to the public edification of the church and the advancement of believers in spiritual communion. For no one requests that anything should be given to him as an individual, but we all ask in common for daily bread and the forgiveness of sins, not to be led into temptation, but delivered from evil. Moreover, there is subjoined the reason for our great boldness in asking and confidence of obtaining, sections 11 and 36. Although this does not exist in the Latin copies, yet, as it accords so well with the whole, we cannot think of omitting it. The words are, Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Here is the calm and firm assurance of our faith. For were our prayers to be commended to God by our own worth, who would venture even to whisper before him? Now, however wretched we may be, however unworthy, however devoid of commendation, we shall never want a reason for prayer nor a ground of confidence, since the kingdom, power, and glory can never be wrested from our Father. The last word is, Amen, by which is expressed the eagerness of our desire to obtain the things which we ask, while our hope is confirmed that all things have already been obtained, and will assuredly be granted to us, seeing they have been promised by God who cannot deceive. This accords with the form of expression to which we have already adverted. Quote, Grant, O Lord, for thy name's sake, not on account of us or of our righteousness. Unquote. By this, the saints not only express the end of their prayers, but confess that they are unworthy of obtaining did not God find the cause in himself, and were not our confidence founded entirely on his nature. Section 48 All things that we ought, indeed all that we are able, to ask of God are contained in this formula, and, as it were, rule of prayer delivered by Christ, our divine Master, whom the Father has appointed to be our teacher, and to whom alone he would have us to listen. Matthew 17, verse 5 for he ever was the eternal wisdom of the Father, and being made man was manifested as the Wonderful, the Counselor. Isaiah 11, verse 2. Accordingly, this prayer is complete in all its parts, so complete that whatever is extraneous and foreign to it, whatever cannot be referred to it, is impious and unworthy of the approbation of God. For he has here summarily prescribed what is worthy of him, what is acceptable to him, and what is necessary for us and charge whatever he is pleased to grant. Those, therefore, who presume to go further and ask something more from God, first seek to add of their own to the wisdom of God. This it is insane blasphemy to do. Secondly, refusing to confine themselves within the will of God, and despising it, they wander as their cupidity directs. Lastly, they will never obtain anything, seeing they pray without faith. For there cannot be a doubt that all such prayers are made without faith, because at variance with the word of God, on which if faith do not always lean, it cannot possibly stand. Those who, disregarding the Master's rule, indulge their own wishes, not only have not the word of God, but as much as in them lies oppose it. Hence Tertullian has not less truly than elegantly termed it lawful prayer, tacitly intimating that all other prayers are lawless and illicit. Section 49 by this, however, we would not have it understood that we are so restricted to this form of prayer as to make it unlawful to change a word or syllable of it. 
For in Scripture we meet with many prayers differing greatly from it in word, yet written by the same Spirit, and capable of being used by us with the greatest advantage. Many prayers also are continually suggested to believers by the same Spirit, though in expression they bear no great resemblance to it. All we mean to say is that no man should wish, expect, or ask anything which is not summarily comprehended in this prayer. Though the words may be very different, there must be no difference in the sense. In this way all prayers, both those which are contained in the Scripture and those which come forth from pious breasts, must be referred to it, certainly none can ever equal it, far less surpass it in perfection. It omits nothing which we can conceive in praise of God, nothing which we can imagine advantageous to man, and the whole is so exact that all hope of improving it may well be renounced. In short, let us remember that we have here the doctrine of heavenly wisdom. God has taught what he willed. He willed what was necessary. Section 50 But although it has been said above, in section 7, 27, etc., that we ought always to raise our minds upwards towards God and pray without ceasing, yet such is our weakness which requires to be supported, such our torpor which requires to be stimulated, that it is requisite for us to appoint special hours for this exercise, hours which are not to pass away without prayer, and during which the whole affections of our minds are to be completely occupied, namely, when we rise in the morning, before we commence our daily work, when we sit down to food, when by the blessing of God we have taken it, and when we retire to rest. This, however, must not be a superstitious observance of ours, by which, as it were, performing a task to God, we think we are discharged as to other hours. It should rather be considered as a discipline by which our weakness is exercised and ever and anon stimulated. In particular, it must be our anxious care whenever we are ourselves pressed or see others pressed by any strait, instantly to have recourse to him not only with quickened pace, but with quickened minds. And again, we must not, in any prosperity of ourselves or others, omit to testify our recognition of his hand by praise and thanksgiving. Lastly, we must in all our prayers carefully avoid wishing to confine God to certain circumstances, or prescribe to him the time, place, or mode of action. In like manner, we are taught by this prayer not to fix any law or impose any condition upon him, but to leave it entirely to him to adopt whatever course of procedure seems to him best in respect of method, time, and place. For before we offer up any petition for ourselves, we ask that his will may be done, and by so doing place our will in subordination to his, just as if we had laid a curb upon it that, instead of presuming to give law to God, it may regard him as the ruler and disposer of all its wishes. Section 51 if with minds thus framed to obedience we allow ourselves to be governed by the laws of divine providence, we shall easily learn to persevere in prayer, and suspending our own desires wait patiently for the Lord, certain, however little the appearance of it may be, that he is always present with us, and will in his own time show how very far he was from turning a deaf ear to prayers, though to the eyes of men they may seem to be disregarded. This will be a very present consolation, if at any time God does not grant an immediate answer to our prayers, preventing us from fainting or giving way to despondency, as those are wont to do who, in invoking God, are so borne away by their own fervor that unless he yield on their first importunity and give present help, they immediately imagine that he is angry and offended with them, and abandoning all hope of success, cease from prayer. On the contrary, deferring our hope with well-tempered equanimity, let us insist with that perseverance which is so strongly recommended to us in Scripture. We may often see in the Psalms how David and other believers, after they are almost weary of praying and seem to have been beating the air by addressing a God who would not hear, yet cease not to pray, because due authority is not given to the word of God unless the faith placed in it is superior to all events. Again, let us not tempt God, and by wearying him with our importunity, provoke his anger against us. Many have a practice of formally bargaining with God on certain conditions, and, as if he were the servant of their lusts, binding him to certain stipulations, with which, if he do not immediately comply, they are indignant and fretful, murmur, complain, and make a noise. Thus offended, he often in his anger grants to such persons what in mercy he kindly denies to others. Of this we have a proof in the children of Israel, for whom it had been better not to have been heard by the Lord than to swallow his indignation with their flesh. Numbers 11, verses 18 and 33. Section 52. 
But if our sense is not able till after long expectation to perceive what the result of prayer is or experience any benefit from it, still our faith will assure us of that which cannot be perceived by sense, viz., that we have obtained what was fit for us, the Lord having so often and so surely engaged to take an interest in all our troubles from the moment they have been deposited in his bosom. In this way we shall possess abundance in poverty and comfort in affliction. For though all things fail, God will never abandon us, and he cannot frustrate the expectation and patience of his people. He alone will suffice for all, since in himself he comprehends all good and will at last reveal it to us on the day of judgment when his kingdom shall be plainly manifested. We may add that although God complies with our request, he does not always give an answer in the very terms of our prayer, but while apparently holding us in suspense, yet in an unknown way shows that our prayers have not been in vain. This is the meaning of the words of John. Quote, if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Unquote. 1 John 5, verse 15. It might seem that there is here a great superfluity of words, but the declaration is most useful, namely that God, even when he does not comply with our requests, yet listens and is favorable to our prayers, so that our hope founded on his word is never disappointed. But believers have always need of being supported by this patience, as they could not stand long if they did not lean upon it. For the trials by which the Lord proves and exercises us are severe. Nay, he often drives us to extremes, and when driven, allows us long to stick fast in the mire before he gives us any taste of his sweetness. As Hannah says, quote, The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. Unquote. 1 Samuel 2, verse 6. What could they here do but become dispirited and rush on despair? Were they not, when afflicted, desolate, and half dead, comforted with the thought that they are regarded by God and that there will be an end to their present evils? But however secure their hopes may stand, they in the meantime cease not to pray, since prayer, unaccompanied by perseverance, leads to no result. Book 3, Chapter 21 of the Eternal Election by which God has predestinated some to salvation and others to destruction. There are seven sections. Section 1. The covenant of life is not preached equally to all, and among those to whom it is preached does not always meet with the same reception. This diversity displays the unsearchable depth of the divine judgment, and is without doubt subordinate to God's purpose of eternal election. But if it is plainly owing to the mere pleasure of God that salvation is spontaneously offered to some, while others have no access to it, Great and difficult questions immediately arise, questions which are inexplicable, when just views are not entertained concerning election and predestination. To many this seems a perplexing subject, because they deem it most incongruous that of the great body of mankind some should be predestinated to salvation and others to destruction. How ceaselessly they entangle themselves will appear as we proceed. We may add that in the very obscurity which deters them we may see not only the utility of this doctrine, but also its most pleasant fruits. We shall never feel persuaded as we ought that our salvation flows from the free mercy of God as its fountain until we are made acquainted with his eternal election, the grace of God being illustrated by the contrast, viz., that he does not adopt promiscuously to the hope of salvation, but gives to some what he denies to others. It is plain how greatly ignorance of this principle detracts from the glory of God and impairs true humility. But though thus necessary to be known, Paul declares that it cannot be known unless God, throwing works entirely out of view, elect those whom he has predestined. His words are, quote, Even then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Unquote. Romans 11, verse 6. If to make it appear that our salvation flows entirely from the good mercy of God, we must be carried back to the origin of election, then those who would extinguish it wickedly do so as much as in them lies to obscure what they ought most loudly to extol, and pluck up humility by the very roots. Paul clearly declares that it is only when the salvation of a remnant is ascribed to gratuitous election we arrive at the knowledge that God saves whom he wills of his mere good pleasure and does not pay a debt, a debt which never can be due. 
Those who preclude access and would not have anyone to obtain a taste of this doctrine are equally unjust to God and men, there being no other means of humbling us as we ought or making us feel how much we are bound to him. Nor indeed have we elsewhere any sure ground of confidence. This we say on the authority of Christ, who to deliver us from all fear and render us invincible amid our many dangers, snares, and mortal conflicts, promises safety to all that the Father hath taken under his protection. John 10, verse 26. From this we infer that all who know not that they are the peculiar people of God must be wretched from perpetual trepidation, and that those, therefore, who by overlooking the three advantages which we have noted would destroy the very foundation of our safety, consult ill for themselves and for all the faithful. What? Do we not here find the very origin of the church, which, as Bernard rightly teaches, could not be found or recognized among the creatures because it lies hid, in both cases wondrously, within the lap of blessed predestination and the mass of wretched condemnation? But before I enter on the subject, I have some remarks to address to two classes of men. The subject of predestination, which in itself is attended with considerable difficulty, is rendered very perplexed, and hence perilous by human curiosity, which cannot be restrained from wandering into forbidden paths and climbing to the clouds, determined, if it can, that none of the secret things of God shall remain unexplored. When we see many, some of them, in other respects not bad men, everywhere rushing into this audacity and wickedness, it is necessary to remind them of the course of duty in this matter. First, then, when they inquire into predestination, let them remember that they are penetrating into the recesses of the divine wisdom, where he who rushes forward securely and confidently, instead of satisfying his curiosity, will enter an inextricable labyrinth. For it is not right that man should with impunity pry into things which the Lord has been pleased to conceal within himself, and scan that sublime eternal wisdom which it is his pleasure that we should not apprehend but adore that therein also his perfections may appear. Those secrets of his will which he has seen it meet to manifest are revealed in his word, revealed insofar as he knew to be conducive to our interest and welfare. Section 2 Quote, We have come into the way of faith, end quote, says Augustine. Quote, Let us constantly adhere to it. It leads to the chambers of the king, in which are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. For our Lord Jesus Christ did not speak invidiously to his great and most select disciples when he said, quote, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Close quote. John 16, verse 12. We must walk, advance, increase, that our hearts may be able to comprehend those things which they cannot now comprehend. But if the last day shall find us making progress, we shall there learn what here we could not. Unquote. If we give due way to the consideration that the word of the Lord is the only way which can conduct us to the investigation of whatever it is lawful for us to hold with regard to him, is the only light which can enable us to discern what we ought to see with regard to him, it will curb and restrain all presumption. For it will show us that the moment we go beyond the bounds of the word, we are out of the course in darkness and must every now and then stumble, go astray, and fall. Let it therefore be our first principle that to desire any other knowledge of predestination than that which is expounded by the word of God is no less infatuated than to walk where there is no path or to seek light in darkness. Let us not be ashamed to be ignorant in a matter in which ignorance is learning. Rather, let us willingly abstain from the search after knowledge to which it is both foolish as well as perilous and even fatal to aspire. If an unrestrained imagination urges us, our proper course is to oppose it with these words, quote, It is not good to eat much honey, so for men to search their own glory is not glory, unquote. Proverbs 25, verse 27. There is good reason to dread a presumption which can only plunge us headlong into ruin. Section 3. There are others who, when they would cure this disease, recommend that the subject of predestination should scarcely, if ever, be mentioned, and tell us to shun every question concerning it as we would a rock. Although their moderation is justly commendable in thinking that such mysteries should be treated with moderation, yet because they keep too far within the proper measure, they have little influence over the human mind which does not readily allow itself to be curbed. Therefore, in order to keep the legitimate course in this matter, we must return to the word of God in which we are furnished with the right rule of understanding. For Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit, 
and which has nothing useful and necessary to be known has been omitted, so nothing is taught but what it is of importance to know. Everything therefore delivered in Scripture on the subject of predestination we must beware of keeping from the faithful lest we seem either maliciously to deprive them of the blessing of God or to accuse and scoff at the Spirit as having divulged what ought on any account to be suppressed. Let us, I say, allow the Christian to unlock his mind and ears to all the words of God which are addressed to him, provided he do it with this moderation, viz., that whenever the Lord shuts his sacred mouth he also desists from inquiry. The best rule of sobriety is not only in learning to follow wherever God leads, but also when he makes an end of teaching to cease also from wishing to be wise. The danger which they dread is not so great that we ought on account of it to turn away our minds from the oracles of God. There is a celebrated saying of Solomon, quote, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing. Unquote. Proverbs 25 verse 2 but since both piety and common sense dictate that this is not to be understood of everything, we must look for a distinction, lest under the pretense of modesty and sobriety we be satisfied with a brutish ignorance. This is clearly expressed by Moses in a few words. Quote, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Unquote. Deuteronomy 29 verse 29. We see how he exhorts the people to study the doctrine of the law in accordance with a heavenly decree, because God has been pleased to promulgate it, while he at the same time confines them within these boundaries, for the simple reason that it is not lawful for men to pry into the secret things of God. Section 4. I admit that profane men lay hold of the subject of predestination to carp, or cavil, or snarl, or scoff. But if their petulance frightens us, it will be necessary to conceal all the principal articles of faith, because they and their fellows leave scarcely one of them unassailed with blasphemy. A rebellious spirit will display itself no less insolently when it hears that there are three persons in the divine essence than when it hears that God, when he created man, foresaw everything that was to happen to him. Nor will they abstain from their jeers when told that little more than five thousand years have elapsed since the creation of the world. For they will ask, Why did the power of God slumber so long in idleness? In short, nothing can be stated that they will not assail with derision. To quell their blasphemies, must we say nothing concerning the divinity of the Son and Spirit? Must the creation of the world be passed over in silence? No. The truth of God is too powerful, both here and everywhere, to dread the slanders of the ungodly, as Augustine powerfully maintains in his treatise, De Bono Perseverantia. For we see that the false prophets were unable, by defaming and accusing the true doctrine of Paul, to make him ashamed of it. There is nothing in the allegation that the whole subject is fraught with danger to pious minds, as tending to destroy exhortation, shake faith, disturb, and dispirit the heart. Augustine disguises not that on these grounds he was often charged with preaching the doctrine of predestination too freely. But as it was easy for him to do, he abundantly refutes the charge. As a great variety of absurd objections are here stated, we have thought it best to dispose of each of them in its proper place. See chapter 23. Only I wish it to be received as a general rule that the secret things of God are not to be scrutinized, and that those which he has revealed are not to be overlooked, lest we may, on the one hand, be chargeable with curiosity, and on the other with ingratitude. For it has been shrewdly observed by Augustine that we can safely follow Scripture, which walks softly as with a mother's step, in accommodation to our weakness. Those, however, who are so cautious and timid that they would bury all mention of predestination in order that it may not trouble weak minds, with what color, pray, will they cloak their arrogance when they indirectly charge God with a want of due consideration and not having foreseen a danger for which they imagine that they prudently provide? Whoever, therefore, throws obloquy on the doctrine of predestination openly brings a charge against God, as having inconsiderately allowed something to escape from him which is injurious to the church. Section 5. The predestination by which God adopts some to the hope of life, and adjudges others to eternal death, no man who would be thought pious ventures simply to deny. But it is greatly cavilled at, especially by those who make prescience, its cause. We indeed ascribe both prescience and predestination to God, but we say that it is absurd to make the latter subordinate to the former. See chapter 22, section 1. When we attribute prescience to God, we mean that all things always were and ever continue under his eye, 
that to his knowledge there is no past or future, but all things are present, and indeed so present, that it is not merely the idea of them that is before him, as those objects are which we retain in our memory, but that he truly sees and contemplates them as actually under his immediate inspection. This prescience extends to the whole circuit of the world, and to all creatures. By predestination we mean the eternal decree of God, by which he determined with himself whatever he wished to happen with regard to every man. All are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. And accordingly, as each has been created for one or other of these ends, we say that he has been predestinated to life or to death. This God has testified, not only in the case of single individuals. He has also given a specimen of it in the whole posterity of Abraham to make it plain that the future condition of each nation was entirely at his disposal. Quote, when the Most High divided the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Unquote. Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. The separation is before the eyes of all. In the person of Abraham, as in a withered stock, one people is specially chosen, while the others are rejected. But the cause does not appear except that Moses, to deprive posterity of any handle for glorying, tells them that their superiority was owing entirely to the free love of God. The cause which he assigns for their deliverance is, quote, because he loved thy fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them, unquote. Deuteronomy 4, verse 37 or more explicitly in another chapter. Quote, the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. For ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. Unquote. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. He repeatedly makes the same intimation. Quote, Behold the heaven, and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also, with all that therein is. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them. Unquote. Deuteronomy 10, verses 14 and 15. Again, in another passage, holiness is enjoined upon them, because they have been chosen to be a peculiar people, while in another love is declared to be the cause of their protection. Deuteronomy 23, verse 5. This too believers with one voice proclaim. Quote, he shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob, whom he loved. Unquote. Psalm 47, verse 4. The endowments with which God had adorned them, they all ascribed to gratuitous love, not only because they knew that they had not obtained them by any merit, but that not even was the holy patriarch endued with a virtue that could procure such distinguished honor for himself and his posterity. And the more completely to crush all pride, he upbraids them with having merited nothing of the kind, saying they were a rebellious and stiff-necked people. Deuteronomy 9, verse 6. Often also do the prophets remind the Jews of this election by way of disparagement and opprobrium, because they had shamefully revolted from it. Be this as it may, let those who would ascribe the election of God to human worth or merit come forward. When they see that one nation is preferred to all others, when they hear that it was no feeling of respect that induced God to show more favor to a small and ignoble body, nay, even to the wicked and rebellious, will they plead against him for having chosen to give such a manifestation of mercy. But neither will their obstreperous words hinder his work, nor will their invectives, like stones thrown against heaven, strike or hurt his righteousness. Nay, rather they will fall back on their own heads. To this principle of a free covenant, moreover, the Israelites are recalled whenever thanks are to be returned to God, or their hopes of the future to be animated. Quote, The Lord, he is God, unquote, says the psalmist. Quote, it is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Unquote. Psalm 100, verse 3, and 95, verse 7. The negation which is added, quote, not we ourselves, unquote, is not superfluous to teach us that God is not only the author of all the good qualities in which men excel, but that they originate in himself, there being nothing in them worthy of so much honor. In the following words also, they are enjoined to rest satisfied with the mere good pleasure of God. Quote, O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen. Unquote. Psalm 105, verse 6. And after an enumeration of the continual mercies of God as fruits of election, the conclusion is that he acted thus kindly because he remembered his covenant. With this doctrine accords the song of the whole church. 
Quote, they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them, but thy right hand and thine arm, and the light of thy countenance, because thou hadst a favor unto them. Unquote. Psalm 44, verse 3. It is to be observed that when the land is mentioned, it is a visible symbol of the secret election in which adoption is comprehended. To like gratitude, David elsewhere exhorts the people. Quote, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. Unquote. Psalm 33, verse 12. Samuel thus animates their hopes. Quote, the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. Unquote. 1 Samuel 12, verse 22. And when David's faith is assailed, how does he arm himself for the battle? Quote, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest, and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. Unquote. Psalm 65, verse 4. But as the hidden election of God was confirmed both by a first and second election, and by other intermediate mercies, Isaiah thus applies the term. Quote, the Lord will have mercy on Jacob, and will yet choose Israel. Unquote. Isaiah 14, verse 1. Referring to a future period, the gathering together of the dispersion, who seem to have been abandoned, he says, that it will be a sign of a firm and stable election, notwithstanding of the apparent abandonment. When it is elsewhere said, quote, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Unquote. Isaiah 41, verse 9. The continual course of his great liberality is ascribed to paternal kindness. This is stated more explicitly in Zechariah by the angel. The Lord, quote, shall choose Jerusalem again, unquote, as if the severity of his chastisements had amounted to reprobation, or the captivity had been an interruption of election, which, however, remains inviolable, though the signs of it do not always appear. Section 6. We must add a second step of a more limited nature, or one in which the grace of God was displayed in a more special form, when of the same family of Abraham God rejected some, and by keeping others within his church, showed that he retained them among his sons. At first Ishmael had obtained the same rank with his brother Isaac, because the spiritual covenant was equally sealed in him by the symbol of circumcision. He is first cut off, then Esau, at last an innumerable multitude almost the whole of Israel. In Isaac was the seed called. The same calling held good in the case of Jacob. God gave a similar example in the rejection of Saul. This is also celebrated in the psalm. Quote, Moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph, and chose not the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah. Unquote. Psalm 78, verses 67 and 68. This, the sacred history sometimes repeats, that the secret grace of God may be more admirably displayed in that change. I admit that it was by their own fault Ishmael, Esau, and others fell from their adoption, for the condition annexed was that they should faithfully keep the covenant of God, whereas they perfidiously violated it. The singular kindness of God consisted in this, that he had been pleased to prefer them to other nations. As it is said in the psalm, quote, He hath not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Unquote. Psalm 147, verse 20. But I have good reason for saying that two steps are here to be observed, for in the election of the whole nation, God had already shown that in the exercise of his mere liberality he was under no law, but was free, so that he was by no means to be restricted to an equal division of grace, its very inequality proving it to be gratuitous. Accordingly, Malachi enlarges on the ingratitude of Israel in that being not only selected from the whole human race, but set peculiarly apart from a sacred household, they perfidiously and impiously spurned God, their beneficent parent. Quote, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I love Jacob, and I hated Esau. Unquote. Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3. For God takes it for granted that as both were the sons of a holy father and successors of the covenant, in short branches from a sacred root, the sons of Jacob were under no ordinary obligation for having been admitted to that dignity. But when, by the rejection of Esau, the firstborn, their progenitor, though inferior in birth, was made heir, he charges them with double ingratitude in not being restrained by a double tie. Section 7 Although it is now sufficiently plain that God, by his secret counsel, chooses whom he will while he rejects others, his gratuitous election has not only been partially explained until we come to the case of single individuals, to whom God not only offers salvation, but so assigns it that the certainty of the result remains not dubious or suspended. These are considered as belonging to that one seed of which Paul makes mention. 
Romans 9, verse 8, Galatians 3, verse 16, etc. For although adoption was deposited in the hand of Abraham, yet as many of his posterity were cut off as rotten members, in order that election may stand and be effectual, it is necessary to ascend to the head in whom the Heavenly Father hath connected his elect with each other, and bound them to himself by an indissoluble tie. Thus, in the adoption of the family of Abraham, God gave them a liberal display of favor which he has denied to others. But in the members of Christ there is a far more excellent display of grace, because those engrafted into him as their head never fail to obtain salvation. Hence Paul skillfully argues from the passage of Malachi, which I quoted, Romans 9, verse 13, and Malachi 1, verse 2, that when God, after making a covenant of eternal life, invites any people to himself, a special mode of election is in part understood, so that he does not, with promiscuous grace, effectually elect all of them. The words, quote, Jacob have I loved, unquote, refer to the whole progeny of the patriarch, which the prophet there opposes to the posterity of Esau. But there is nothing in this repugnant to the fact that in the person of one man is set before us a specimen of election, which cannot fail of accomplishing its object. It is not without cause, Paul observes, that these are called a remnant. Romans 9, verse 27 and 11, verse 5. Because experience shows that of the general body many fall away and are lost, so that often a small portion only remains. The reason why the general election of the people is not always firmly ratified readily presents itself, viz., that on those with whom God makes the covenant he does not immediately bestow the spirit of regeneration, by whose power they persevere in the covenant even to the end. The external invitation without the internal efficacy of grace, which would have the effect of retaining them, holds a kind of middle place between the rejection of the human race and the election of a small number of believers. The whole people of Israel are called the Lord's inheritance, and yet there were many foreigners among them. Still, because the covenant which God had made to be their father and redeemer was not altogether null, he has respect to that free favor rather than to the perfidious defection of many. Even by them his truth was not abolished, since by preserving some residue to himself it appeared that his calling was without repentance. When God ever and anon gathered his church from among the sons of Abraham rather than from profane nations, he had respect to his covenant, which, when violated by the great body, he restricted to a few that it might not entirely fail. In short, that common adoption of the seed of Abraham was a kind of visible image of a greater benefit which God designed to bestow on some out of many. This is the reason why Paul so carefully distinguishes between the sons of Abraham according to the flesh and the spiritual sons who are called after the example of Isaac. Not that simply to be a son of Abraham was a vain or useless privilege. This could not be said without insult to the covenant but that the immutable counsel of God by which he predestinated to himself whomsoever he would was alone effectual for their salvation. But until the proper view is made clear by the production of passages of Scripture, I advise my readers not to prejudge the question. We say then that Scripture clearly proves this much, that God by his eternal and immutable counsel determined once for all those whom it was his pleasure one day to admit to salvation, and those whom on the other hand it was his pleasure to doom to destruction. We maintain that this counsel, as regards the elect, is founded on his free mercy without any respect to human worth, while those whom he dooms to destruction are excluded from access to life by a just and blameless, but at the same time incomprehensible judgment. In regard to the elect, we regard calling as the evidence of the election, and justification as another symbol of its manifestation, until it is fully accomplished by the attainment of glory. But as the Lord seals his elect by calling and justification, so by excluding the reprobate either from the knowledge of his name or the sanctification of his spirit, he by these marks in a manner discloses the judgment which awaits them. I will here omit many of the fictions which foolish men have devised to overthrow predestination. There is no need of refuting objections which the moment they are produced abundantly betray their hollowness. I will dwell only on those points which either form the subject of dispute among the learned, or may occasion any difficulty to the simple, or may be employed by impiety as specious pretexts for assailing the justice of God. Chapter 22. This Doctrine Confirmed by Proofs from Scripture. There are eleven sections. Section 1. Many controvert all the positions which we have laid down, especially the gratuitous election of believers, which, however, cannot be overthrown. 
For they commonly imagine that God distinguishes between men according to the merits which he foresees that each individual is to have, giving the adoption of sons to those whom he foreknows will not be unworthy of his grace, and dooming those to destruction whose dispositions he perceives will be prone to mischief and wickedness. Thus, by interposing foreknowledge as a veil, they not only obscure election, but pretend to give it a different origin. Nor is this the commonly received opinion of the vulgar merely, for it has in all ages had great supporters. See section 8. This I candidly confess, lest any one should expect greatly to prejudice our cause by opposing it with their names. The truth of God is here too certain to be shaken, too clear to be overborne by human authority. Others who are neither versed in scripture nor entitled to any weight assail sound doctrine with a petulance and improbity which is impossible to tolerate. Because God of his mere good pleasure electing some passes by others, they raise a plea against him. But if the fact is certain, what can they gain by quarreling with God? We teach nothing but what experience proves to be true, viz., that God has always been at liberty to bestow his grace on whom he would. Not to ask in what respect the posterity of Abraham excelled others, if it be not in a worth the cause of which has no existence out of God, let them tell why men are better than oxen or asses. God might have made them dogs when he formed them in his own image. Will they allow the lower animals to expostulate with God as if the inferiority of their condition were unjust? It is certainly not more equitable that men should enjoy the privilege which they have not acquired by any merit than that he should variously distribute favors as seems to him meet. If they pass to the case of individuals where inequality is more offensive to them, they ought at least, in regard to the example of our Savior, to be restrained by feelings of awe from talking so confidently of this sublime mystery. He has conceived a mortal man of the seed of David. What, I would ask them, are the virtues by which he deserved to become in the very womb, the head of angels, the only begotten Son of God, the image and glory of the Father, the light, righteousness, and salvation of the world? It is wisely observed by Augustine that in the very head of the church we have a bright mirror of free election, lest it should give any trouble to us the members, viz. that he did not become the Son of God by living righteously, but was freely presented with this great honor that he might afterwards make others partakers of his gifts. Should any one here ask why others are not what he was, or why we are all at so great a distance from him, why we are all corrupt while he is purity, he would not only betray his madness, but his effrontery also. But if they are bent on depriving God of the free right of electing and reprobating, let them at the same time take away what has been given to Christ. It will now be proper to attend to what Scripture declares concerning each. When Paul declares that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 verse 4, he certainly shows that no regard is had to our own worth. For it is just as if he had said, Since in the whole seed of Adam our Heavenly Father found nothing worthy of his election, he turned his eye upon his own anointed, that he might select as members of his body those whom he was to assume into the fellowship of life. Let believers then give full effect to this reason, viz., that we were in Christ adopted unto the heavenly inheritance, because in ourselves we were incapable of such excellence. This he elsewhere observes in another passage, in which he exhorts the Colossians to give thanks that they had been made meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. Colossians 1 verse 12. If election precedes that divine grace by which we are made fit to obtain immortal life, what can God find in us to induce him to elect us? What I mean is still more clearly explained in another passage. God, says he, quote, hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, unquote. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. Here he opposes the good pleasure of God to our merits of every description. Section 2. That the proof may be more complete, it is of importance to attend to the separate clauses of that passage. When they are connected together, they leave no doubt. From giving them the name of elect, it is clear that he is addressing believers, as indeed he shortly after declares. It is therefore a complete perversion of the name to confine it to the age in which the gospel was published. By saying they were elected before the foundation of the world, he takes away all reference to worth. For what ground of distinction was there between persons who as yet existed not, and persons who were afterwards like them to exist in Adam? But if they were elected in Christ, it follows not only that each was elected on some extrinsic ground, but that some were placed on a different footing from others, since we see that all are not members of Christ. 
In the additional statement that they were elected that they might be holy, the apostle openly refutes the error of those who deduce election from prescience, since he declares that whatever virtue appears in men is the result of election. Then, if a higher cause is asked, Paul answers that God so predestined, and predestined according to the good pleasure of his will. By these words he overturns all the grounds of election which men imagine to exist in themselves. For he shows that whatever favors God bestows in reference to the spiritual life flow from this one fountain, because God chose whom he would, and before they were born had the grace which he designed to bestow upon them set apart for their use. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Still Waters Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L, 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as, at times, to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.